You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. When you apply the same basic assumptions to both of the proposals and you look at the analysis, the Soto proposal would produce about three times as much revenue that would flow to the city's general fund compared to the OVG proposal. I'm Jeff Schulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast looks at how growth and the potential for a new sports and entertainment arena affects the city's budget. First, you will hear from City Budget Office Director Ben Noble. He describes how growth affects the city's costs and revenue, and ultimately, the services available to you. So I suspect that we will have some time now to adjust to a, a level of growth that's somewhat slower. Um, and, you know, as we do better planning, um, that we'll, we'll be able to do a better job of, um, of addressing that growth and that uh, we'll have time to absorb the financial challenges that emerge. Given Director Noble's insight of how the budget affects your life in this city, one question is, how will the looming arena decision affect the budget? To address that question, you will hear from University of Washington professor Justin Marlowe, who has analyzed the two competing proposals to build an arena in Seattle. The actual number would be more like $68 million. That, that's, that's the revenues from the SOTO plan that flow to the general fund that exceed what would go to the general fund over the, under the OVG proposal. This is the second of three new episodes covering both our city's transformation and the competition between private groups hoping to invest roughly half a billion dollars into a new arena in Seattle. In last week's episode, you heard from former Mayor Mike McGinn, who gave historical background on Seattle's current growth and also perspective on its future. Deeper you look at their proposal from Oakview Group, they're asking for a fair bit of city revenue. And when you start doing all the math... Um, of, the, of the money that they're capturing, my thought is, huh, maybe we should just dedicate those revenues to a modest remodel of Key Arena. As we transition to today's episode, the director of the city budget office gives insight into how growth affects the resources available to the city and how these resources get deployed. Will Seattle's growth mean better infrastructure and services for you? If so, how long is the lag? What about the costs of accommodating more people and businesses? To find out the answers to these questions and more, join me as I sit down with Ben Noble. I'm here at City Hall in the City Budget Office with the director, Ben Noble. Ben, thank you for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, so why don't we start by having you tell me a little bit about yourself. Working for the city for about 16 years. Um, first 12 or 13 of those, I was working uh, for the city council doing uh, policy work. Eventually, I was the director of their policy shop. They have a set of uh, analysts who work actually for all nine council members, helping them process um, all the legislation and all the policy work they do. Um, moved uh, upstairs to the budget office when uh, Mayor Murray was elected, uh, so I've been doing this for a couple of years. Um, my educational background is in economics, actually a UW student, um, graduate school, uh, and then did some consulting in that field for a while as well. So tell me about your work as the director of the city budget office. So we, uh, it's, it's a mix of work. Um, part of what we do is, is the budget itself. So and that actually ends up being a, a full year process. We begin in January uh, building the budget um, and then uh, evaluating um, potential proposals from departments to both increase our budgets and to decrease our budgets. We're tracking the city's revenues. Um, we eventually frame those up as choices to the mayor, first in May and then again in July, submit the budget in the fall uh, to the council at the end of September. They then process it for a couple of months uh, and adopt it uh, just before Thanksgiving, and then the whole thing starts up again, <laughs> more or less in the middle of December, and, uh, and we're back at it. So that, that's one body of work. Um, and then, in addition, we're providing general policy advice to the mayor and consulting with the departments on a variety of financial issues that come up, um, usually things, again, that, that have a financial or budgetary angle, but they don't, it's, the, the budget is adopted once a year, but there are a myriad set of policy and fiscal issues that come up uh, over the course of the year. There's this notion out there that more people means more money, which means life's going to get better because the city is going to be able to do more services. What's the lag between when somebody moves in and starts using these services to when they uh, can be their revenue can be counted into the budget? There's not, you know, there's not necessarily a, a lag. I mean, the if someone moves in, I mean, the, well. We're thinking about where does the city get money. So our our principal revenue sources for basic city government. So we have a, something we call the general fund, which is where all the discretionary money comes in. So 
the money that you were just talked about this earlier, money that goes to utilities, that can only be spent on the utilities. So it's not really discretionary. Um, and we bring in um, money from, from like the transportation levies that's been, voters have uh, agreed to tax themselves for transportation that goes to the transportation department. Um, it's also not flexible. Um, but as we think about park services, fire, police, uh, libraries, these kind of more discretionary services, there are three or four principal revenue sources that we that, that feed that. One is sales tax. So sales tax in the area is roughly 10%. The city gets a tenth of that 1%. So, um, and we, you know, so if someone moves in and they start going out to eat and uh, they go decorate their apartment at Target or whatever, uh, we, get, we get 1% of that. Um, so that, that hits pretty quickly. Property tax is another piece that we get. Um, that one is particularly interesting, if you will, in that the growth of that is actually very much constrained. So we get, um, you know, property values in the city have been escalating really, really quickly of late. That's actually, that property value escalation has no impact on our property tax revenues per se. Um, the way the rules in the state work are we we're allowed to collect 1% more in property tax revenue than we collected last year, with the exception that if there's a new building, if there's new construction, the tax on that doesn't count against that 1%. So we talk about getting 1% plus the value of new construction. Um, and in a good year, that might add another percent. So our property tax piece is growing by 2% per year. Um, and if somebody moves in, that actually doesn't, our property, our property tax doesn't change because the apartment they moved into, their landlord was paying the property tax one way or the other. So there's not a big, not a big increment there. As new apartments get built, um, and there's certainly been a lot of that, um, we do get some increment in property tax. There is a lag there. That money will come depending on when the building gets built, essentially a year after, a year after it's constructed. And then the other big place that we get um, revenues is something called the business and occupation tax, uh, B&O tax, and that's a tax on businesses. It's a tax on their gross revenues, so not on their profits, but on just their total revenues. It's a very low rate because it's, again, on their total revenues rather than their profits. But that's the money, uh, that's, those are revenues that, again, would start flowing immediately. So if someone starts um, do, living in the city and is, you know, buying stuff and, um, and working um, their, uh, the values, the, the value that they add to their company and, the, and their shopping, that, that ends up being collected to by us relatively quickly. Um, now, you know, how much extra demand they, they place on city services in exchange for the, you know, as, as our revenues go up, that, that's another question. Um, and it depends on the kind of, you know, individual they are and what sort of services they're seeking. The city is growing, and as it grows, I'd imagine there's some costs that are relatively fixed that doesn't depend on how many people are here in the city, and some costs might be variable that as we grow more people, uh, we, the city needs to spend more money to serve them. Can you talk about which costs uh, generally are, are fixed and which ones rise with the number of people? No, it's, it's a really good question, and it's funny. They, you know, they, they rise, but, all, but not necessarily... Um in, in subtle ways. So I, let me explain. So one obvious one, um, the police, so um, uh, public safety. Um, the city has for a very long time had essentially a, a police force of roughly the same size. Um, and the city's population had been growing slowly, um, but the sense that there wasn't a, a critical sense that we were underserved. Um, but in recent last couple of years, as population growth has taken off, and that's not just the resident population, you have to realize that in the middle of the business day, the city's population, including the workers, is very large. Um, a lot of folks obviously commute in. Bottom line, the number of, of calls to 911 and the number of, of issues have, uh, incidents have, have risen, and there is suddenly a real pressure about increasing the number of police officers. So that's one that, in the past, I would have told you, you know, that relatively modest growth rates and um, in both residents and, and business activity there really wasn't a, a tight relationship to, 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 to increasing a force to match that increase of activity. But we reached a tipping point here some po in recent years, and that's, that's become a real pressure. Um, the fire department, in some ways it's similar. There's a, there's a base level of fire service which almost doesn't matter on the size of the, of the, of the, of the city. So we have, I forget how many, 30-plus fire stations. Each of them has a uh, set number of equipment. You know, it's usually, typically, it's one engine. There are four off, four firefighters there. They're there 24/7. They're busier during the day, a little less busy at night. Um, but that's we had that pretty steady service like that for a very long time. But again, in recent uh, recent years, we've seen the number of calls. Actually, it's interesting that 
calls have shifted over time to almost be the vast majority are not fires, but medical emergencies, like 80 plus percent. And the number of those calls has, again, spiked recently, and in particularly in the downtown area, which is reflective of the of the business as well as the residential growth there. So um, we added a um, an emergency vehicle, so essentially an ambulance, if you will. You know, the pressures are to suggest that we might want to do that again. Um, so those are ones that, that certainly um, are increasing. Um, things that don't inherently increase with population, you know, be the transportation, you know, th- in terms of the paving of roads and the building of sidewalks and the like, that's not in- inherently tied to the, to the population. That said, you know, wear and tear on the roads, you know, it does increase when there's more folks around. And we certainly see seen increased demand for transit service, so buses, as um, and the buses have gotten more crowded as business activity and the number of residents have increased. Any others that kind of are fixed or that uh, change? Well, you know, the, on the utility side, those costs are actually lo- more fixed than you would, you know, the, uh, than not. So, for instance, uh, water utility. Um, all of our water comes from this. It comes from two rivers, Tolt and the Cedar. The water is free. Um, it largely flows downhill to us. There's, a, there's occasionally a pump or two, but that, that actual that system, there aren't. You know, we can build an apartment building and, and plug it into the existing system without having to rebuild a whole new set of pipes. And City Light largely works the same way. Um, we have enough power to to supply the. Ex- not only our existing, we actually we have excess power that we sell. So if there if there's more load growth, there's more activity here in the city not particularly a problem. Um, so those, you know, those rates have been going up a little bit, but we haven't had a, a big discrete jump. Uh, having said that, there are occasionally just, just um, significant investments. So that we're building a new uh, substation for City Light in the South Lake Union area because of all the development. Um, that has some small impact on rates because uh, it's a big cost that's absorbed over the whole system. And does the city budget office get involved with some of these self-sustaining budgets. So Seattle Public Utilities and Seattle City Light, they char- they get their revenues from their rates. D- does your office get involved with their re- budgets? We do, absolutely. So they are, every year when the council approves the city budget, which is roughly $5 billion, a couple billion of that uh, are those utilities, basically about a billion each for Seattle Public Utilities and a billion for City Light. And those the rates that they charge are approved by the city council. The budgets that they operate with are approved by the, by the mayor and the city council. So we're reviewing all that as well. Um, they have very significant staffs of their own. So our review is largely in support of theirs, but um, we do bring a critical eye um, to that as well. Yes. And so you've got these fixed costs, and you've got some that that need to that scale up as we get more residents. How do you forecast the costs that will be present in the future? A couple of ways. I mean, one is we we do a biennial budget, so we do a two-year budget, so we at least have a, a two-year um, a two-year look ahead on that. Um, Beyond that, we are um, we have each of the departments develop a six-year financial plan, um, and largely th- that has assumed that there's not that their services are going to only grow marginally, um, essentially with inflation and some 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 marginal amount of growth. Um, it's actually it's been relatively recent that we've seen this this real surge in growth. So one of the things we're doing is, is taking a look at, at maybe at developing a different approach to forecasting some of the growth in some of those expenditures. Because, again, in the past, we could largely assume that fire and police would could sustain themselves as they were, um, beginning to realize that if we're going to see the kind of growth that we have going forward, that that's probably not the case, that we're going to need to uh, we need to invest in them. Um, you know, and on the police side, we now have a plan to add 200 police officers over the next essentially six years. Um, so that's one where we have, we've built that in. We, we develop a uh, a rolling six-year um, forecast of their overall city budget, um, particularly on the, the general fund side. So um, the utilities do their own forecasts out that far. Um, and we now have that the cost of those 200 officers that will be hired over the next six years built into those forecasts. So can you go into more specifics as to the ways you're thinking about forecasting the future? Or is it still in, in flux? It's still in flux. I mean, the, the, one of the things, it's, it's, it's not... There's not a direct translation between the number of employees or the number of the population. So in some ways, we're, we're, we're reactive to seeing, okay, let's see what the volume of calls is like and, and what that implies. Um, but, uh, again, we've got police officers we've got built in, fireside, um, more, more difficult at this stage to, 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 to tie directly to the, to the population and, and business growth. But but seeing some relationship there, so but it's it's an area where we're seeing it's it's, it's a new it's a new effect for us as well. So we're uh, beginning to rethink some of our approaches. And are there any surprise costs that arise in a year 
And are these surprise costs changing, or are they fairly constant? No, I, mean, I, I wouldn't describe that there are you know surprises. I mean, one of the continual challenges that um, we've faced since um, I, I took on the role, so since since um, Mayor Murray is the the pressures around homelessness and uh, the, the costs associated with trying to take that take on that issue more directly. Um, and it's one where it's seemingly no matter what we spend, there is more to be spent um, or that could be spent. So that's one that it's surprised in the sense that it's it's um, we can't get ahead of it, if you will. Beyond that, I, you know, I, no. I mean, what we're seeing is just a, a general uh, general demand for city services. So right now, the city is undergoing various ideas to rezone various areas in in the city. With that rezoning, when do you or when would you count those people towards your budget to start increasing? the police, increasing the fire, increasing the services that that, that upzoned area is going to, to use? Yeah, I mean, it depends where in the city. And um, in the end, what we're looking for is to see how the demand for services changes. So we're not going to increase the budgets until we actually see them, an increase in demand for services, and then see that the existing infrastructure isn't sufficient to meet it. So as an example, um, uh, thinking about fire services, um, in the downtown area, the the fire stations are uh, are at sort of maximum um, uh, production. They're out. They're out, they're rolling to calls constantly. Um, so as we as as the population here increases, you know, when we added we recently added an aid car as I described previously. We added it in downtown, and if we were to add another one, we would add it in downtown. That's where the that's where the call volumes are, um, but we're waiting to see. You know, we're, we're tracking those the call volumes, looking at the level of um, staffing we have, and can they can that be sustained, or is it time to add uh, add a unit, if you will? And what are the challenges with being more proactive to smooth out the growing pains, so to speak, where you kind of know there's about they're going to zone for four thousand new residents and putting in the fire resources in place uh, before that? That's a really good question. That's actually one of the things that the, we've recently been trying to reorganize the city to do better. So um, Mayor Murray proposed and council approved the creation of something that we've called the Office of Planning and Community Development. And the reason to create that office was a recognition that we um, we need to do a better job when we upzone an area to think about, okay, what's the infrastructure that's going to be needed? So what are, is, are the, as, are, do we have enough parks? land nearby? Is that parkland configured in a way that's going to be useful for those residents? Uh, is the street network um, developed sufficiently? Um, do we have sidewalks you know, in the core areas where we can, where we're going to see increased pedestrian volumes? So we're only just beginning this work to, I mean, to try to do this work better, um, but that is one of the things that we have seen that with, you know, before the city was taking off in terms of its level of growth, that was it wasn't such a bad it wasn't such a big issue right we could afford to, to to be less focused on making sure that we have the infrastructure that is commensurate to support the the growth that that we need we're recognizing as we look ahead um, that that's going to become ever more important and as you undertake major capital projects like a new police precinct or a new firehouse how long ahead do you need to plan that, that and how do you free up the resources for such a project uh, that, that's a great one and actually the, um, one of the places we've been able to turn and this is an example of how growth in some ways can can help pay for growth if you will is uh, I didn't mention it when I was talking about the the revenue sources to the general fund, but another another tax source that the city uh, relies on is something called real estate excise tax. It's a tax that's paid when you buy or, well, it's actually paid by the seller, I think. So when you sell a piece of real estate, um, the city gets a half a percent. Um, so if you sell um, a 200000 well, that'd be a pretty cheap house. If you sell a $400,000 house, um, the city actually gets $2,000. Um, because of the real estate market, um, both the values going up and also just a lot of, we, we get that from commercial sales as well. So, and actually I'm pointing out my window, some of the downtown office towers have been transacted. Um, actually Columbia Tower, which you can see from my office, the tallest one in the city, um, a couple of years ago, it sold twice in the span of a few months. And the most recent sale, it was $700 million. So the city gets a half a percent of that. We get three and a half million dollars from that sale. So those revenues have been up. Um, so we're actually gonna be dedicating both current uh, real estate ex tax, excise tax revenues and future revenues. But then also we're going to issue debt, so we're going to we're going to borrow money as you do when you buy a house, and we're going to use future um, real estate excise tax revenues to help pay down that debt. 
Um, and one of the reasons that we feel comfortable doing that is that given the increase in property values in the city, we think that that, that revenue stream is going to be higher than it has been, um, and, it'll, and it will sustain at that level going forward. And so right now it's hard to imagine a time of decline, but what happens if you issue that debt and the housing prices uh, it's fall? A really, it's a really good question, and it's one that, that we've worked through and modeled. So we've taken a look at, all right, what would happen if that revenue stream dropped by 30% or even by 40%? Um, we've seen that happen in the Great Recession, uh, which I don't expect to see again. I just knocked on wood um, in my lifetime. But... Uh, you know, we, we've seen those kind of reductions, and we could. We, what we know is we could still sustain the, the, that that debt service. It would mean that we would. We the other places that we use those those revenues, that real estate excise tax revenue, is to support um, some basic projects in areas of parks and in transportation and other things. So there would be less money to spend on those uh, those other issues, um, those other needs. And as you look forward to the next five years. And we see projections of, of continued growth here in the region and, and in Seattle in particular. What's keeping you up at night in, in your job? It's a it's a fair question. Um, in some ways, what keeps me up is the opposite of that: is the concern that we won't see the growth, um, and that in fact we'll we'll hit a recession, um, and uh, we will eventually, um, and that uh, as things turn down, that we'll then face the difficult choices about. A, how to um, reduce um, our, our level of spending. So I guess the other thing, I, and it's actually along the same lines, um, one of the things that I think is an emerging risk for the city is um, our dependence on um, particular um, areas of the economy and in, to be specific particular companies. So um, the city uh, has enjoyed tremendous growth as a result of Amazon, just to name name the company, um, and its explosive employment growth. Um, those are great, high-paying jobs. Um, they brought a ton of people into the city. I think, I don't know, I don't have the data senses that a great number of, great share of their workforce actually lives in the city. Um, but in the same way that there, and I wasn't here for it, there were, um, the city suffered greatly when Boeing hit its downturn in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, when you're when there's one company who is such a key driver of your economy, that's that or you're not very diversified, right? Um, and I don't want to overplay that. I mean, the, the, the Amazon is certainly not the only reason that we're growing. We have a, a good, we have a large number of high-tech firms, but you know that is a sector that we're becoming ever more dependent on. So that, you know, that it's not a lack of diversity, but in some ways we've had some decline in the diversity of our economy at the same time that we've had growth because the growth has been so concentrated in some areas. So that's. You know, in the bigger picture, um, potential area of concern. Just how scary is an Amazon contraction to the city of Seattle's budget? You know, it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, Amazon itself, you know, the, the way we collect taxes, the things that Amazon sells outside the city are largely things that we don't tax. Their, their business, it's our business in the city that we that we tax. And, they're, you know, they, they're... Um, you know, they only sell as much stuff here as they sell everywhere else uh, in, in literally in the world. Um, but what it is, they, they've, it's high-paying jobs. So, um, and the way, you know, the way a local economy works is someone with a high-paying job spends their money on entertainment and on shopping, and, it's, and their, their money then becomes somebody else's income and becomes somebody else's job. So, you know, um, jobs at Boeing support multiple jobs other places, and jobs at Amazon are, are the same way. So I can't Sitting here, I couldn't give you a you know a concrete example, you know, estimate of like, oh, you know, our revenues would drop by X percent if you know Amazon contracted. But they're supporting a, a good deal of, of high-paying jobs, um, both directly in their company, and then the companies that are serving them. I mean, I think a lot of their vendors are now moving close to them. Um, uh, so it's hard to know what the what the exposure is there. But you know, it's 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 ironic. You know, we were benefiting from the from the growth, but then we've created this risk at the same time. So on a scale of 1 to 10, instead of a number that makes any sense, a scale of 1 to 10, how much does that scare you? Oh, a 3 or 4, maybe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's on the top. Of, it's on your mind, it's but not, yeah, it no, doesn't... It's, uh, no, it's, I mean, again, I, the sense is that, that um, Amazon is, is itself a pretty diversified... You know, it's not just its retail activity. They do a lot of cloud computing. They do, you know, they're, they're invested in lots of areas. So I don't... Um, I'm not expecting them, you know, it's not like they're they're selling a single kind of car or something like that, um, right? If it was Tesla, maybe I'd be a little more worried. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So any concluding thoughts on population and economic growth in Seattle and either what it means for you professionally or what it means for you personally? The way I've thought about this and looking forward is that I don't, 
the last few years have been truly explosive growth. Um, and it's, I cannot believe that we're going to see that going forward. Um, so I suspect that we'll have some time now to adjust to a, a, a level of growth that's somewhat slower. Um, and, you know, as we do better planning, um, that we'll, we'll be able to do a better job of, uh, of addressing that growth and that uh, we'll have time to absorb the financial challenges that emerge um, so that it's not going um, it's, it's to keep racing away from us, but rather as growth slows, we'll be able to catch up some and figure out, okay, how much do we need to invest in police? How much do we need to invest in fire? We'll have time to see how that has played out. Um, and I know I'm not, I'm not looking forward to that. Just I think realistically the, the, the pace of growth um, that we've seen is it's, it's it's been almost historic um, and seems unlikely to continue. Ben, thank you very much for your time and your perspective. Really appreciate hearing uh, your voice here today. Ah, my pleasure. Thank you. In season two of Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from Chris Hansen about his plan for a Soto Arena. We picked an area that had the best transportation infrastructure next to two other sports arenas and that was zoned for an arena and which, you know, you would think would have minimal impact on the residents' because there is no real residence there. There's no people that are actually living in this area currently, and our events occur at night. So when you look back and you compare it to Key Arena, all of us were ticket holders that had gone to games here. And we looked at this area and were like, you know, it's not getting better. The traffic situation and parking situation is not getting any better around here. And this was in 2012. You also heard from Lance Lopes of Oakview Group, about their intentions for remodeling Key Arena in Seattle Center. Well, well, first and foremost, the history of the location is—it's a fantastic location. It's been the heart of the city for many years, and the hearts of the heart of certainly the cultural and entertainment community. With all of the different events and activities that go on down there, millions of people uh, go to Seattle Center every year. The Space Needle alone draws over two million people a year. Given Director Noble's insight of how the budget affects your life in this city, one question is. How will the arena decision affect the city's budget? University of Washington professor Justin Marlowe has crunched the numbers to find out. Join me as I hear more about his process and his findings. I am here with Justin Marlowe, uh, endowed professor of public finance and civic engagement and an associate dean for executive education at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington. That's a mouthful, but Justin, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I, as you mentioned, I'm at, uh, at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance uh, on the faculty there. I teach courses in public financial management, uh, tax policy, budgeting, debt management, public-private partnerships, that sort of stuff. And I do a lot of research in that area, too. And now you are in the middle of the great arena debate here in Seattle. Uh, you have done with uh, several grad students a Seattle Arena public finance analysis. Can you just tell me high level about the purpose of this? Yeah, the idea was to try to bring some information into the debate that that wasn't really in the debate prior to this to this analysis coming forward. That's information that you know, we saw as really crucial to this debate. In particular, what are the implications of these two different arena proposals for taxes that the city of Seattle would or would not collect? And the, you know, the debate, as you know, is very robust. There's lots of discussion about parking and impacts on neighborhoods and all those things that typically come up. And we just felt like the the public finance dimension of this was really crucial and wasn't getting quite the same attention. So we thought it was important to put this kind of additional data point out there about what would these different arena proposals mean for taxes for the city of Seattle. And have you done similar work like this before? I have, yeah. I do a lot of this type of financial modeling, uh, both in, in our teaching and in research. And then uh, on in this case specifically, I was part of the team that King County put together in 2012 to look at the, at the original SOTO proposal that was then uh, memorialized in the Memorandum of Understanding in 2012. And as part of that process, we did some similar work uh, to the work that we've done here, trying to understand all the different kind of moving parts that would affect the way that that arena proposal would ultimately impact, in that case, King County's finances, but a lot of the same tools and techniques apply if you're trying to understand what it means for the city. So you were on the King County Arena Proposal Expert Panel back in 2012. How were you selected for that, and what was your personal role within that group? Uh, at that time, Council Member, uh, King County Council Member Joe McDermott was the chair of the uh, county's, I think they called it Fiscal and Budget Management Committee, and they were tasked with reviewing 
that proposal and then ultimately crafting the MOU for the county. So they, it was under the auspices of the, of the county council. My, my role on that was to answer a very specific question, which was if under, under the terms of that financing arrangement, what would that financing arrangement mean for King County? And in particular, um, could it have had some impact on King County's bond rating? Uh, what impact would it have had on King County's finances in the event that it were to just really flop? What had you done that made them believe that you were an expert uh, in terms of public-private partnerships and such? Well, I've published a few papers on public-private partnerships, and I teach a course on that actually at the Evans School, which is a lot of fun. And it's and it's public-private partnerships specifically for infrastructure projects. So a lot of the concepts around risk management and how do you go about writing contracts for P3s and those kinds of things. That type of expertise was very relevant to the structure of that deal. And uh, very few of us, at, at least at that time, had been looking at public-private partnerships and trying to explain them to elected officials in terms that they that they could really run with. And so now you're doing, a, you've done a Seattle Arena public finance analysis in 2017. How did this project arise? So we were contacted by uh, by the Soto team, uh, who I, like I'd mentioned, had had interacted with them a little bit in the course of doing the the work for the 2012 Memorandum of Understanding, and they, uh, like I said in the beginning, they we had a shared interest in just trying to put out the the kind of public finance details that we thought were really relevant to the debate that for a variety of reasons weren't just weren't out there when we went through that work in 2012. Several of us spent a good chunk of our of our summer. I mean, that was really a, a, a pretty intensive. Many many hours went into that analysis, and as as Chris Hansen himself has says, you know, he, he felt like that proposal at that time was really closely scrutinized and, and picked apart at many different levels. I think that that analysis is happening of the OVG proposal and and still to some degree of the Soto proposal. Um, it's just, it hasn't been made public. I, I, I'm all but certain that the city budget office and the counties, I'm sorry, the uh, city council's central staff have done a lot of the same kind of modeling that we put forward in this project, just for a variety of reasons. They're just not making that analysis public. I can certainly understand why we have a lot of respect for those folks. I've helped train several of them. You know, we're, we're all on the same team in that respect. They're just, you know, they're under a, a set of constraints here. So the idea was to sort of assume that that analysis was being done and put out something that looks a lot like what we expected uh, uh, they've been doing. And so at a high level, uh, what are your findings uh, of the Seattle Arena public finance analysis? When you apply the same basic assumptions to both of the proposals and you look at the analysis, the we find that the Soto proposal, according to our calculations, would produce about three times as much revenue that would flow to the city's general fund compared to the OVG proposal. And a lot of that is a function of the fact that the SOTO proposal would pay property taxes, you know, which OVG would not. And that alone uh, makes it a, you know, very different value proposition for the city with respect to the to the property taxes in particular. So you find that SOTO would uh, pay three times as much money into the general fund. Your research was funded by the group who's behind the SOTO arena what role did they have in these results? Well, the simple answer is they had no role at all. When they when they came to us and they gave us free reign to to do it however we wanted to do it, and and they insi- in fact they insisted that it was independent and transparent and that they have no influence on what we did or what we ultimately found. Now, undoubtedly, um, of, of course, you know, to a casual observer, you would say how how independent can you really be when they were paying for it? And, and those are all fair criticisms, but. All of our work is there, and anyone can go download it and take a look at it for themselves and scrutinize it for themselves. I think, I think we're on solid ground in, in saying that this is an analysis that that had anyone paid for it, we probably would have arrived at the same basic results. Of course, they're well aware of the of what makes their proposal different than the others. It was very very likely that the the the, the main takeaway would be that. Soto's contribution to the general fund would be larger than OVG's. It's important to note at the same time, and we try to make this really clear in the report, that our finding is you know is one data point, right? This is part of a much larger, much more robust debate. And we try to, in the report, point out that, you know, the question of what is that, say it's $100 million that, uh, well, I mean, the actual number would be more like $68 million. That, that's, that's the revenues that 
Soto, uh, those, that's the revenues from the Soto plan that flow to the general fund that exceed what would go to the general fund over the, under the OVG proposal. So $68 million. And so you put that number in context. Is that, is that enough uh, to go in a completely different direction with Key Arena? Is that enough to, uh, to alleviate some of the concerns that have been put forward about congestion in Soto or impacts on the port's operations, whatever it might be? And those are all fair questions, and that, and, but that's the point, right? It's, it's a data point for anyone who's concerned about these trade-offs in this debate to be able to say, now we have some numbers to begin to kind of put those numbers in context. And so did they give you an extra bonus for coming up with uh, numbers that benefit them? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, no extra was, money at the end of the day. No, no. Uh, no, again, it was, uh, the idea was that it was, uh, uh, you know, they, they wanted independent analysis. We, our, our payment wasn't in, in any way positive or negative contingent on what we found. So let's talk about those numbers three times as much. So you say about $68 million over how many years? We did a 35-year analysis. And for the finance geeks listening, is that number in net present values or added it over the whole 35 years? That is $68 million net present value. Yep. We, we discounted, uh, for the finance geeks, we discounted just using today's treasury rates plus uh, I think about 25 basis points. And for the non-finance geeks? That's the, the, the money that will be generated over time expressed in today's buying power. Collecting a million dollars in 35 years is very different than collecting a million dollars today, assuming that there's some inflation, assuming that that dollar buys you less in the future than it buys you today. So the idea was to be able to say, in today's dollars, if you were to have all that money, what could you go out and buy? And what can you buy with uh, $67, $68 million? Is that a big number relative to the Seattle budget? Yeah, that's a great question. So the so the, the city of Seattle's total budget is about $5 billion, about $5.2 billion to be specific. And that includes a, a whole bunch of different revenue sources, including a lot of the money that flows into the utilities, into Seattle Public Utilities and City Light. Now, at the same time, the city's what we call general fund budget. So the portion of the city budget that's used to pay for public safety, uh, other core services that are paid for mostly through the sales tax and the property tax, that's about a 1.2 billion right now. And, you know, so 68 million in the context of a $1.2 billion budget, you know, now you're talking a, a potentially a, a substantial impact over now. At the same time, that's that's 68 million over 35 years, right? So you have to chop that up uh, over time. But it's you know, so I think it's it's not a it's not an immaterial amount of money in the context of the city budget. At the same time, this is not the sort of thing that you're going to be able to go out and start new programs and f- or fill all the potholes in Seattle with the money that would flow to the general fund. Uh, under either of these proposals. Let's get into the details of your approach. What are the sources of money that's going to flow into the general fund that you considered in these two projects? So we looked at six particular revenue sources that that would apply to a facility like a sports arena. So the, the property tax, the sales tax, the admissions tax, the business and occupations tax, the parking tax and the what they call the leasehold excise tax, which is a, a tax levied on on leasing of property. So it was those six, the different proposals uh, would or w- would pay some of that directly into the city general fund, and then under under OVG in particular, some or all of those six would be you know redirected or repurposed. So they wouldn't flow to the general fund. They would flow back into the arena uh, in the form of what OVG has provisionally called the city arena fund. So those, those taxes would be collected, but then they would flow into a fund that would be used to, to pay for maintaining the arena over time. And your analysis included more than 100 unique assumptions. Can you just give an example or two of an assumption that you need to make to be able to crunch these numbers? Yeah. So... Uh, so the sales tax is a very good example, right? I mean, the, the sales tax that you would collect from this kind of a – from an, an arena depends on how much, uh, for example, concessions you sell at, at the arena itself. So you need to know how many people are buying concessions, how much they're buying, how those concessions are priced. Do they buy more when the team is successful? All of those kinds of things need to be factored in. And so – 
those 100 different assumptions are all around the different the different assumptions you have to make that tell you something about the the tax base and so what would you say has it has been or you would conjecture would be the most controversial of your assumptions with these kinds of projects there's always this question of of what we would call net new revenue and so the question of that that redirection or what is net new is always really controversial in the context of these kinds of analyses we you know we we did the best we could given the information that was available we ended up assuming if i remember right that something like two-thirds of the of the sales tax revenues in particular collected would be net new and that's based on other studies of other similar arenas i know the mariners did something like that a few years ago and they found that that you know mariners fans are coming to see the mariners uh, or they're watching the game at home or doing something else. It, it, there's not a lot of redirecting of entertainment dollars from other places to the Mariners. And I think that applies in the context of, of both the NBA and the NHL too. But, you know, th- that that's a very important number, right? Because th- that drives all of these other revenue numbers. So that's a controversial number and it could affect that $68 million, which is the difference between what you say Soto would earn the city's general fund versus the OVG at Key Arena. Would it change the what we call the qualitative result? In other words, would it switch? Um, OVG could then it become m- more revenue producing than Soto Arena? Maybe not that assumption specifically, but there are a, there are a few, and and in fact folks who have downloaded the model and and kind of come back to us with their versions uh, have gamed out a variety of scenarios where OVG would send more money to the general fund than Soto would. All right, so let's talk about that swi- uh, something that could switch whether Soto or OVG puts more money into the Seattle's general fund. Um, is there one assumption that's not currently under the control of OVG and city council? In other words, is there an assumption that you made that is not about the negotiation that's going to take place, that if you change that assumption, all of a sudden your results have switched? Not necessarily. No, I think I think everything that we included would would need to be or will be covered ultimately by the negotiations. But there are, I mean, we had to make some assumptions about how they would pin that number down in a negotiation, right? So, I mean, as an example, going back to the revenue sharing scenario, the based on what OVG has said so far, at least based on my understanding of what OVG has said so far, they have said that once a certain dollar amount of taxes have been redirected into the city arena fund, then from that point forward, they will share revenues with the city. We, we, I think it was $40 million, if I remember right, was the number based on the number that they have put out there before. They could easily change that in the negotiation and say, well, actually, once you get to 30 million or once you get to 20 million, and that would, that would change the complexion of the overall analysis. Same with the amount that would be shared once revenue sharing begins. We assumed uh, that 20% of the revenues that would flow into the city arena fund would ultimately be shared with the city. If that number were a lot higher, you would have a very different overall financial impact of the OVG plan for the city. So we're assuming that they negotiate kind of on those terms, then you could see, you could go into our model and change those assumptions and see what that would mean. But if they if they negotiated differently, then yeah, then you would need to rethink the structure of the model to be able to arrive at the kinds of numbers that we put forward. And so you've got uh, an output which says Soto was going to generate three times as much revenue for the general fund uh, based off of your public finance analysis. Does this include the payments to the street vacation and the lander overpass? And does this include lease payments from OVG to Seattle for using its public land? So it does include the latter. So the, the lease payments are, we made some assumptions about the lease payments that OVG would make to the city. Although if I remember right, the there would be credits against those payments in the forms of other taxes. And so the way we looked at it, OVG would very likely not pay a a lot in rent or a lease payment as long as they were generating sufficient revenues elsewhere, like from the sales tax. So that's in the model and potentially subject to some other kinds of assumptions. The first piece of that is, that's a really good question. And we, and, and we did not, I mean, we, we didn't consider any number of other kinds of investments that either party would need to make, uh, whether it's on the street vacation, um, investments in parking, investments in public art, there's all kinds of 
other money that both of these parties would need to spend. And again, we, our idea was that the 68 million, you know, 68 million number is out there and you could use that as a reference point for any of those other kinds of investments that either party is is planning to make should they should they be selected. So if someone is supporting Key Arena and they want to reverse that number and they need to know what to ask city council to negotiate, what's one or two things that they should focus in on? Yeah, that's a great question. The So again, back to the revenue sharing uh, piece of the OVG proposal. I think that's a really important one. And we try to make that point in our in our report that if you want OVG to contribute more to the city general fund, then the revenue sharing needs to start sooner. That is to say the total amount of taxes that flow to the city arena fund uh, should probably be less than what OVG has proposed so far. And then the city council should aggressively negotiate for a, a, as a biggest a slice of those revenues as they can every year going forward. Can you talk a little bit more about the OVG and how they're going to compensate the city of Seattle or uh, put money into uh, our budget? OVG is asking, again, based on what they what they have put forward so far, which is all subject to negotiation should they decide to go there, is is all sub, is essentially to, to redirect or repurpose the vast majority of the revenues that would be collected at that facility. And, and then the like I said, the, the one-third number comes from the ongoing revenue sharing that that OVG would have with the city based on the numbers that, that we put forward. Uh, so it is, it, it's a, it depends on how you want to look at it, right? There's some who would say that's an innovative public-private partnership. And, and a lot of other professional sports facilities do some version of that where you're redirecting incremental new revenues back into the facility because it does add public value. I mean, it's certainly there are jobs created and economic impacts. Nobody's denying that that a brand new professional sports arena is going to have an economic impact nearby. We didn't try to quantify that or, or, or get into any level of detail about that, but it's undeniable that there's some impact. And so that's, that's the argument for redirecting a lot of those revenues. But because so many of them are redirected, and, and because in the Soto case, very few of them are redirected, that's what accounts for most of that that big difference between the two numbers. The the mayor has said that Key Arena is a liability. Uh, given your expertise in public-private par- partnerships, do you see how Soto Arena can be built without Key Arena being a liability to the city? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the, and and to be clear, we we didn't attempt to grapple with that question in in this work. There's two perspectives on that. Uh, undoubtedly, the you know the mayor is is correct from a straight accounting standpoint that the city has this publicly owned property and it will continue to depreciate and will continue to need investment. And unless you're willing to sell it or completely repurpose it somehow, that's money that the city will have to contribute uh, to to keep up with the spending needs of that facility. So that yes, that's that's the reality. At the same time, if we were to look at it as economists, you know, one might say that sunk costs are sunk costs, right? And and it's it's not so much about what we have not been spending. It's not so much about the deferred maintenance or whatever you want to call it at Key Arena. The more important question is, what is it worth to us going forward, both as a potential source of revenue, whether that's by having an arena that sells tickets, whether that's by repurposing it into something different, whether that's by demolishing it and building something else there, whatever it is, there's a very different way to think about Key Arena as an opportunity rather than as a liability. And I, and I, I get it. I get I, The mayor makes a good point, and there's a lot of people who agree that, uh, assuming that we can't just tear it down and do something different with it, that it will need city investment. But there's a different perspective, and I think there are a lot of folks who would say that just because it's there and it's on the balance sheet now should not uh, you know, preclude us from looking at a variety of options and I think there's a lot of value to that perspective as well. Any concluding thoughts? It'll be interesting. These, you know, these, we've been having arena debates here for a long time now, and 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 this will continue. And and like I said, the, I, I really hope that that people take the value of what we did here as an additional data point, right? As an additional consideration in the context of a of a much 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 broader debate. And uh, hopefully, again, take the model, download it. Do your own stuff with it. Draw your own conclusions. Write back to us and tell us what you're doing with it. 
because we hope that its value as a tool is 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 going forward as the debate unfolds, that it'll give people an opportunity to kind of go in and see what the public finance impacts are in real time as the discussion continues. Justin, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I really appreciate it today. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you'd please take a moment to rate the podcast in iTunes. I love reading the reviews listeners have provided. You could also reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, with any comments, questions, or suggestions based off of what you've learned in today's episode. Next week, we will look further into the transformation of Seattle and the arena debate by asking the question, has Seattle grown enough to become a hockey town? You will hear from the executive director of the Seattle Sports Commission, Ralph Morton. This is an opportunity to dream, uh, dream about what comes next, who we're going to be. We already have the most buildings going up in the country, almost in the world. We have so much going for us. It's just sort of see, what is this? Who are we going to become? Um, you look at just what the 12s can do and the emotion and the spirit and the passion. You look at the people who go to all the sporting events around town, whether they're running in the Rock and Roll Marathon or whether they're cheering on the Sounders FC or they're heading out to a Mariners game. Think about that and then you know, multiply it by maybe an NHL, by an, an NBA, and see where we can be as a community. And I think it's, it's what part is, it's about sports can be about pride, community, bringing us together. So it's, it's nothing but exciting to think that we could be an even bigger sports town. And that's the sort of thing that binds us more, in, more than just a city, but in a community. You'll hear from former professional hockey player and member of Mayor Murray's Key Arena Advisory Panel, Todd Humphrey. You know, I had the privilege of sitting on the ma- the mayor's advisory council and really looked at the two options. One from uh, the Oakview Group, who ended up, um, you know, being the mayor's choice. The other one was AEG, which also had a really strong bid. But you know, we dug into the arena design, the traffic flows, what what an arena was going to look like, and then most importantly, which would be the best redesign of Key Arena. You'll also hear from a fan, John Barr who has devoted hours to developing the NHL to Seattle community. There's a team in Kent, uh, Seattle Thunderbirds, who won the WHL last year, which is the Western Hockey League, and Everett Silvertips. And they draw pretty well for for kind of a a smaller team. On on one night, I think it was the last Saturday of the season, there was over 14,000 people at those two arenas because they were playing on the same night. And co-director of development at the Ronald McDonald House Charities, Vanessa Kirk-Briley, We'll describe how hockey can help more than just sports fans. So Hockey Challenge raises between uh, $150,000 and $200,000 a year, and this is our second largest event. So it's a big deal for us. It's One of the reasons it's a big deal is because it involves a lot of people. Um, and the more people that we reach, the more awareness about the house there is. Combined through these interviews, you will get insight into the hockey history and potential future in our growing city. Until then, I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for listening to Seattle Growth Podcast.